Welcome to this edition of Toby Haddock's Who's Round. Last time we talked about bringing down the government and that's where we carry on with Andrew Cartmill. something like 20 years later it became a scandal in the press um and i've got to say if if you've ever woken up and discovered that you're there's a story about you in a national newspaper which is trending and it's not a good story boy that that's a strange feeling and not a nice feeling you're like in the middle of this cyclone and you have no control over it and it's going to tear you like it might tear your life down and ever since then i felt the enormous sympathy for the you know the, the worst sort of coke-sniffing supermodel or drunken um, Premier League footballer who ends up on the wrong side of a tabloid. It's just, it's a nightmarish feeling. Um, just to, for the sake of historical veracity, it wasn't my job application. Um, I was having an, a job interview with John Nathan Turner. It had been going really well. And he said, if there's one thing you could do with Doctor Who, what would it be? And so I, I answered him truthfully. And I said, I like to bring down the government because I hated the Thatcher government. I still do like ding dong, the wicked witch is dead, boy. So, um, I, I, and just as a sort of little side note here, there used to be this advertising campaign in America for Levi's bagels, uh, you know, a make of bagels. And they used to have this, the ad campaign was, you don't have to be Jewish to love Levi's. And you know, you have an Eskimo eating a bagel, you have a little black kid eating a bagel, you know, whatever, uh, you know, um, uh, an Apache eating a bagel so i always felt that you didn't have to be that this is the point of the story you didn't have to be left-wing to hate thatcher <laughs> in exactly the same way you just had to have some human decency and some intelligence so i hated the thatcher government so i said oh i'd like to bring down the government and i don't know if john actually chuckled but i said i think he probably didn't he said well you can't do that you can't do that but the most you can do in doctor who is is have a story about how purple people and green people are all equal and but yeah so it's true that i did say that and um Somehow Sylvester must have got wind of it because I'd completely forgotten that I'd said such a thing. And I was interviewing Sylv to get a, um, an introduction to my book Script After, and he reminded me that I said that. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's true. I, I did say that. And then, <laughs> and then years later, and this is the strange thing about Doctor Who, it just keeps coming, it never dies, it just keeps coming back. Um, I got a phone call from a journalist on the, I think it's the Sunday Telegraph. And the way he, my agent, in fact, told me I should talk to this journalist because the way that they put this to me, the journalist, was that um, he was doing a story about Sylvester. He just wanted some background colour. So what? It, but it turned out what he actually wanted to do was do a hatchet job in the BBC as a nest of evil, baby-eating communists, who you know who who were using public money, as you said, to to promulgate commie views and all that. And so he somehow got wind of the fact that I'd said this, and he put the two and two together with the fact that we'd done the Happiness Patrol, which was in which um, Helen A. Who, this ruthless dictator who murders people was based on Thatcher, which she was. <laughs> There's no bones about that. She was absolutely based on Maggie Thatcher. And he, he, so he put a bunch of this stuff together and he said, oh, you had these left-wing writers. And, and so the, I had no idea when I was being interviewed that this was what his, his take on it was going to be. But then the story appeared 
And I had no, I had no idea that this was happening. So I started getting all these strange emails saying, oh, nice story in the Sunday Telegraph, mate. I thought, what? And so after about the third or fourth email, uh, I thought, oh, I better go out and get this. And I went and bought the Sunday Telegraph. <laughs> not, not an action that I often take. And um, I, I looked through it and there's nothing in there because I looked all through the, the, the review section, all through the art section, all through the TV section. There was nothing. And then I went through the news section. There it was. I think it was on page three of the news section. You know, evil left-wing commies infiltrate BBC, blah, 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 blah. And I, as I say, it was, you know, this is, oh, I can really sympathize with the coke-sniffing supermodels at this point who get caught falling out of a nightclub. It's, it was a horrible feeling. But luckily, um, the BBC, which is always a very balanced organization, um, invited me on Newsnight on telly to, to sort of give an account of myself, which I, I did to some, to some effectiveness. But, uh, I mean, just to, to take that story up at one point, so I was hiring all these commie writers. Ben Aronovich, his dad was a very famous communist. But Ben is so uncommon. You know how you react against everything that your parents hold dear, everything that's rammed down your throat as a child. You couldn't get somebody who's not. Ben is, is you know, he's a very sceptical person. So he, he, he wasn't no commie. So, uh, but had, had, you know, had he been a commie and a good writer, I would have unhesitatingly hired him. I would have happily had a stable of great commie writers as long as they were great writers. But they weren't. And it was just a terrible misrepresentation of what we were doing. But extraordinary that it should come on decades after we did it. And in that sense, it was once I was on the other side of it and didn't have to worry about my life being in the tabloids anymore, I, I thought it was really fantastic that, that we were still having this after effect all these decades later. And the same thing happened a few years after that. Then the, Arch, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, for his Easter uh, address, he said, oh, and there was a Doctor Who story about a planet on which it was a crime to be unhappy. I thought, whoa, you know, we've it was soaked into the culture. We, we've seeped into the fabric of the culture. And there's no getting us back out. We, we've dyed the tapestries that are the background of everybody's lives. So um, I think this all came about because you, you mentioned the thing about me overthrowing the government. Yeah, uh, but I, I must admit that going back all those years, I, I misspoke. I, I shouldn't have said overthrow the government. I should have said bring down the government because what I actually had in mind was exposing the government the Thatcher regime for, for the innately corrupt thing that it was so my, in my head it would be you expose them for what they are then they're voted out of power that's bringing down the government um, overthrowing the government is a different thing it involves guns Molotov cocktails yeah, yeah yeah so that wasn't what I meant because you know uh, that overthrowing the government is, it wasn't something I would condone even the Thatcher government but yeah so my heart was in the right place well, you mentioned the writers that you employed. Tell, tell me about, uh, because he's, I don't even know how to pronounce his surname, Malcolm Cole. Cole yeah, yeah I, cool. I, who, who, you know, is a guy that's never really been interviewed much. He sort of nipped into Doctor Who to do three episodes of Doctor Who that are quite unlike any other episodes of Doctor Who. Then off he goes again. <laughs> so so how did you find him? Who, what, what was he like? Well, when I, um, the reason I ended up doing Doctor Who was because I wanted, I wanted to be a novelist, right? And I thought an easy way supporting myself while writing novels would be writing for television ah! yeah I know I had no idea right ah! no idea dude but it, to that end I bought a book called writing for television by a guy called Malcolm Hulk mm. now Malcolm Hulk who it was, was a, a communist, communist yeah <laughs> and he wrote loads of golden age Doctor Who uh, which is by the by but anyway so I this book was full of useful advice not least on how to lay out a TV script and 
and really good piece of advice is that when you send these scripts off to people with a letter, keep the letter really short. Just say, here's my script, hope you like it. And that's a great piece of, I realized, only began to realize what a great piece of advice that was when I sat down as a script editor and started to get letters from people, which were not like that. Uh, and, you know, we'd go on to pay and tell you all this garbage that you didn't want to know. And yeah, so very good, very useful book. And so I wrote loads and loads and loads and loads of scripts and I, I sent them off and they didn't get bought. But what did happen is they did begin to generate a certain amount of attention. For instance, the BBC back in those days, there was something called the script unit. Right. And these days you've got something called the writer's room, about which I'm very sceptical. Um, but it, the, I suppose it's equivalent in those days was the script unit. And the script unit, what it would do is, is this. If they found somebody who's writing what they thought were good scripts of a, of a certain level of ability, they'd invite you in. And once it invited you in, there wasn't too much they could do because the script unit was in this sort of porter cabin somewhere, I can't, I can't, can't remember where, where it was now, but it wasn't at the centre of things. It wasn't at Television Centre or Shepherd's Bush. It was sort of out in the boondock somewhere. And that physical location reflected its kind of bureaucratic location because it was off to one side. And uh, the guy around it was this terribly nice man called Tony Dinner. And if, if Tony found somebody who thought was a blazing talent, and occasionally he did, he would recommend, he'd try and recommend them to some producers and the producers just wouldn't be interested. So he had no clout. And there was no pipeline by which Tony could get a, a, a writer that he, he thought was a good writer. There's no way, there's no process for getting that guy commissioned or that woman commissioned because there was some very good women writers coming through. But what happened is we would come in and we'd have some tea and cakes and we'd read a script aloud, one of our scripts aloud, and you'd meet the other writers who would, like you, had been invited in because they'd written something interesting. That's where Malcolm Cole came from. That's where Ian Briggs came from. And indeed, Stephen Wyatt was knocking around this, the script unit, but not while I was there. Uh, in fact, I think he was working at the script unit, presumably reading scripts and writing reports on them. But it was really a great nexus of talent. And so I met Briggsy and I met Malcolm there. And so once I landed my job at Doctor Who, and we needed scripts like, you know, we went from the show may or may not get commissioned, you know, Doctor Who's in limbo. Oh, do OK, go make the show. Right. Make it now, 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 now. And that's one reason why John did Time in the Rani, because he he thought he'd done the right thing by commissioning. He had one episode commissioned. He thought, oh, this is like life insurance. Yeah. And, you know, there's a safe pair of hands. These are writers he's worked with and liked. Anyway, I, I won't continue to pillory Time in the Rani, which I don't like at all. But there was a logic to his methodology. That's, well, the point was we needed scripts in a hurry. So he'd got Time and the Rani. And while that was being shot, I needed to get some other scripts going pronto. So I got in, I invited Malcolm and Ian in as two writers I knew were good because I'd had their scripts read to me in the script unit. We, uh, you know, we'd sit around and, and read the parts. And it was, it was great. So I got those guys in and they then proceeded... Um, more or less difficulty in coming up with an idea that suited. It wasn't that the writers, the writers were perfect, but then getting a writer to come up with a Doctor Who idea is not always an easy thing because it's a very weird format, very weird show in lots of ways. So as I remember, Ian Briggs had quite a, we had quite a lot of difficulty coming up with the story, but Malcolm came up with one fairly quickly because Malcolm writes thrillers and he also writes in a comic mode. We end up with a sort of comedy thriller, and it, as you say, it was unlike anything we did on Doctor Who. Uh, or even that, that in my era we did again, because we were still finding our feet. I think it's it's more broadly comic 
uh, than some of the later shows because as I say we were still trying this and that but well I, I thought I liked Malcolm's writing a great deal and what he got right instantly was what we got right was the 50s setting that was terrific and the Bannerman was so good because we had Don Henderson as Gavrock and he was such a great heavy he was such a great villain a wonderful actor so we got loaded and the costumes were fantastic for that show I'll tell you what I don't think people talk about enough in that story I think Richard Davis is brilliant as Burton because he's funny oh yeah yeah but when he needs to deliver when the bus gets blown up and everything like that yeah. he's totally straight down the line and, and very and I think it's a great performance I think he judges it really it's a lovely performance I think well the f- funny you talk about the bus getting blown up because that uh, now that that in its original form, that show was too comic. That story was too comic because I remember we, the first episode went off. You know, we commissioned it. Uh, Malcolm wrote it, and everything was pretty good. But then issue two came in. For some reason, I was out at lunch or something, and John got a hold of it before I did. And I was summoned to his office. He said, "All right, you know, I don't think it was very good," which freaked me out. So that was Friday afternoon. So I, I travelled down to Kent that weekend because I used to always go down to stay at the, the family estate in Kent. It was a little house where my mum lived, but I went down to Kent uh, uh, with a script tucked under my arm, and I remember my girlfriend at the time saying, "Oh well, if you if you can't do the Doctor Who script properly, you just have to you know you just have to give him a good slapping kind of thing," like she was more she was more kind of gung ho script editor than I was. <laughs> but the thing was, so it, the script was it was marking time. It was like in episode two, we were waiting for episode three to happen, and while we were waiting for that, all that was going on was some fairly broad comedy I don't remember exactly but I think that was pretty much the case so I rang up Malcolm and said and the important thing in the situation like this is not to destroy the writer's confidence because once you destroy the writer's confidence they can't function and you need the writer to rewrite the script so I rang up and said look there's the, the score John doesn't like it it's too calm but not enough is happening so I, I'd already come up with some ideas I said okay so here what, what we do we, we blow up the bus and we'll kill all the space tourists because you know suddenly uh, uh, sort of handbrake turned into something much darker and more dramatic and on the, the, the phone with him Malcolm and I worked out the beats of the story the main uh, points the main dramatic points of the story and then Sunday I went zipping up to London met Malcolm I think was probably living in Islington somewhere like Angel Islington so we, I went up pretty early Sunday we sat down I think we ordered a Chinese takeaway we spent the whole day just ha- detailing up the script hammering up the script and we, although the script wasn't entirely written by the end of that Sunday we'd nailed it down and Malcolm said about rewriting it and we were both pretty knackered by the end of Sunday as you can imagine and I got on the train to head home must have been the tube I guess and I looked up across the carriage and there sitting across the carriage was Ian Briggs <laughs> on the other road and, uh, and I, I, what I wanted to do was go up and tap him on the shoulder and say Briggs Where's the script? Like I'd been following him around all day, right? But I thought he might have a heart attack. So I went and explained to him. It was just this bizarre coincidence that I happened to be on the... You know, I've just seen the other writer I'd commissioned. And there, there was Briggsy. But yeah, I suppose what happened was Ian Briggs had quite a rough ride early on, trouble finding a story to settle on. Once he got the story settled, his, his work on the scripts flowed quite smoothly. He didn't have any problem with the scripts. Whereas Malcolm came up with a story quite quickly that was very, very was accepted and was was considered right, but then he had a bit of a rough ride on the scripts. Are you still in touch with uh, everyone? Yeah. All the writers well, you worked with on the all show? except Kevin Clark, who is angry at me for some reason, but he's too angry at me to tell me why he's angry at me. So I don't know why he's angry at me, but but I obviously did something to offend him, which was is that a shame. at the time. No, this was like years later. 
because we were mates. I mean, all the writers were mates because I loved them. I loved their work and they were great blokes and women. Rona Monroe, God, what a great writer she is. And I, I just adored them and I stayed in touch with them. And at some point, um, at some point I lost touch with Rona. I don't know why that happened, but I'm back in touch with her now. And it's fantastic. Uh, she's just such a great writer. But at some point in those subsequent years, in those dark fallow years after Doctor Who, um, I must have said something to offend Kevin, who's not a man who forgives you easily. So the answer to your question is, apart from Kevin Clark, I'm in touch with all of them. And if Kevin ever wanted to sit, sit down with me and you know, bury the hatchet, I'd be in touch with him too. Because they're terrific people and great writers. I was speaking to Graham Curry on Sunday about Sondheim and Sweeney Todd and football. <laughs> he was talking about football, I just kind of nodding, listening. <laughs> yeah, the, the terrific looks. Malcolm's in South Africa now, but in this age of Skype and all the rest of it, that doesn't really make that much difference. And there was this, the reason I'm back in touch with Rona Monroe is Tom Spilsbury, bless his heart, who edits Doctor Who magazine now, suggested that I do an interview with all the people from my year on the show, all the writers. Yeah. <laughs> in my mind, they're the people. They're the only people, right? <laughs> Everybody else, they're not people, just the writers are people. So, um... I did, I did all these interviews with everybody except Kevin, who won't speak to me. He won't tell me he won't, won't speak to me because he won't speak to me. But apart from him, I interviewed everybody, uh, saving Pip and Jane Baker, who I don't really consider being part of my era of the show because they're a holdover from the old era. But the point is, uh, this was a great excuse to get back in touch with people. Malcolm I'd been in touch with while he was in the UK, but he'd relocated to South Africa where he's now teaching uh, screenwriting, I believe, at university or film studies, something like that. And working in film and television, it has to be said. So this was a great opportunity to Skype him and, and email him and, and talk to him. And Rona, who I'd completely lost touch with, I managed to get a hold of her phone number. And it was it was great. It's like, you know, old times again. And it was just one of the great things about that is the writers who I hadn't remained actively in touch with, it renewed the, the friendship. But, I, you know, people like Ben, Stephen, Graham... Uh, Ian Briggs, we would, and Mark Platt, we'd meet quite often and have, have a burger. We, there used to be this really good vegetarian curry restaurant in Panton Street opposite the Comedy Theatre. And they used to, they used to do um, uh, this fantastic buffet. And this is, I never really understood this about the credit crunch, but when the financial crisis happened, everybody raised their prices. I mean, I, I could never work it out that people had less money to spend. Anyway, so this wonderful restaurant um, no longer did this fantastic cheap buffet, but that's used, that used to be where we went and and meet the doctor who writers would have a regular get together all these guys so it would be you know, like briggs would come um and uh, uh, ben would come down and and uh, stephen wyatt used to love that restaurant so we'd all get together but after that after that we found some burger places where we like to eat so we'd used to regularly get together uh that's not quite so regular now because graham as i say malcolm's in south africa graham's in cambridge I still see the boys in London, Briggsy and, and Mark Platt and Ben. ben I, I'm in touch with all the time because I'm co-writing with them on, on a comic and, and various other projects. Well, that's the thing, of course, as well, is, um, you know, what you say, you, you, you finished with Doctor Who, which we'll come back to, I think, but, and, and you went on to do Casualty, which must be a very, because I, I feel your passion for Doctor Who, and of course it's a way of telling the stories you want to tell in an abstract way, which is much, very exciting for a writer. You can't do that with casualty. So how did you 
satisfy yourself creatively with something like casualty and what were the challenges of that? Well, the, cha the challenge of that is the problems with casualty was, was that the producer and I were at loggerheads because although John and I often had disagreements we were both basically on the same team we were in the same foxhole firing our guns in the same direction at the same enemy but it was not like that on, on casualty the problem with casualty is the producer didn't understand scripts but he thought he did he'd gone on the um that the, this a screenwriting famous screenwriting called Robert McKee he'd gone on the Robert McKee course and the trouble with the Robert McKee course is it's so lucid and it's such a great summary it it gives you the impression that you understand things even when you don't so what he, he had was he ended up with this list of things that he thought made a good script the producer and he didn't understand scripts at all so I had some wonderful writers who had a really hard ride like Ben wrote a terrific script which this, this producer just ran roughshod over it was terrible experience because I didn't feel I could defend Ben as much as I wanted to it was just so Ben I was sort of in the middle of the producer was raining down fire on this script anyway the producer yeah uh, the less said about him the better that was the problem the producer didn't know what he was doing and he didn't want to do what I wanted to do so I had problems with I hired all these great writers I, I had Ben I had Rona I managed to get Robin Mukherjee on who, who I would have done on Doctor Who if it lasted a bit long I got Briggs on and almost all of them had a terrible time. It's like they put them in a spin dryer because the producer had his own ideas, which were uh, and he, he didn't leave me the autonomy I needed. And we so that was uh, an unpleasant experience. But the main thing about Casualty that's diabolical is on Doctor Who, you get the producer to sign off on it, and that's it. But on, on a script, that is. On Casualty, you had a nursing advisor, a doctor advisor, medical advisor, a doctor, and an ambulance advisor. And any one of those three people could put the boot in your tears script. They could throw the spanner into the works. And I, I hated that because it suddenly um, there's all these people who had a veto and they shouldn't have had a veto. So it was that was very problematical. It was, it was a tough gig, casualty. So that wasn't a lot of fun. But in answer to your question, the way I... I express my ideas was hiring the best possible writers and some of the writers that uh, I inherited on that show were terrific writers too Ginny Hall a, a great writer and and some others were first-rate writers as well so I was working with great writers but just uh, experiment I mean it's when you're dealing with a producer like that when they don't understand scripts and they think they do it's really a disastrous situation it's like having somebody who's in charge of a symphony orchestra who's completely not just tone deaf, but like stone deaf, deaf as a post. And it, it, it was very difficult. Or a blind man <laughs> running an art gallery. <laughs> so it was like that, you know, and he, he, you know, he had have to feel the frame of the painting or get advice from his friends about whether the painting was any good because he couldn't see it. So there's all sorts of problems on that level. So not a happy experience, but some, I managed to hire some great writers and they got paid, <laughs> which is always the main That's thing. Always nice. Yeah. Well, talk, I mean, so, so how does, how does, uh, because... Obviously, television drama started being made less and less, and you know we have different sorts of shows now. Certainly, in house BBC. So, how how do you go on to make a living when you finish working at the BBC as a sort of I guess as a freelancer? Were you thereafter? Well, what happened was I, I as you will gather, I didn't have a good relationship with this producer, so he fired me, um, or rather, he didn't renew my contract, which was devastating because I I was kind of young and naive, and I thought I'm at the BBC now. I've been given my passport into the world and the passport was taken away and I, so I took it very badly because 
what I'm great at is editing scripts and writing scripts. What I'm not great at is politics. Like all that business. See, I would never go to the pub with a producer, which was a fatal mistake. Because, the, the, you know, a lot of... I'm, I'm not a drinker, I'm not part of the pub culture, but that was where the decisions were made. So while I wasn't going to the pub, other people were going to the pub with a producer who did not have my best interests at heart. And, yeah, so it was very... Un, so I was completely rattled because I thought... But I was doing this great stuff. And the thing was, I'd done this fantastic season of Casualty, worked really hard, come up with some great scripts, and here's your reward. You've been fired. <laughs> fantastic. So I was really thrown. And a, a more canny operator than me, somebody with a thicker skin and a better sense of politics, could have easily weaseled their way into another position at the BBC. But you see, a person like that wouldn't have ended up getting canned in the first place. But, you know, all, all, I, was, all I was was really good at my job, not which isn't the most important thing I discovered. The important thing is all that stuff around it, going to the pub, politics, keeping an eye out, keep watching your back, it turns out, at the BBC. So I uh, I stopped working in television. You asked, what did I do? I got a job on a magazine. So I worked in magazines for a number of years, which has led to some good things and was interesting. But it was... Ben once said, Ben Aronovich once said to me, you know, what happened to you was a crime against writing, because what I should have been doing... It was writing television all that time, script editing, writing, and producing TV shows. And we, and if that's true of me, that's true of Ben Aronovich in spades. Because the, in many ways, the worst part about me losing my position was I had this whole team of writers, and without me to act as their patron, to hire them and nurture them and be their rabbi. In the, in the, the New York Police Department, they talk about you having a rabbi which means a senior officer who protects your interests and guards you and protects you. So that's what, I'm, that's what the writers needed at the BBC, and that's what I was. And I, when, I, when I, my career ended, when I got booted out, um, you can tell I'm a bit bitter about that. <laughs> yeah, but um, that meant that these writers, their careers were over too, because nobody hired Ian Briggs. Uh, nobody hired Ben, which is insane. Ben is the best screenwriter in Britain, probably Western Europe, maybe the world. I mean, he's just a great natural talent as a scriptwriter. And, uh, you know, it's like it's like knowing this guy who can run the 100 metres faster than anybody in the world and not letting him run. Like, why would they not do that? It's just madness. It's, like, it's just crazy. So just because I wasn't there, these terrific writers went to the wall. And careers that should have happened didn't happen. Like Ian Briggs, what a, he was a, he, Ian Briggs is a better writer about character than anybody else I've ever met. His career and Mark Platt, you know, he he's doing loads of stuff for Big Finish, which is great. But he should have had a proper career in television. All these writers, Rona uh, did very well. She went on to do loads of uh, feature film scripts and stuff. But again, she could have written loads of excellent television drama. So there's this whole generation of television writers that didn't happen just because some drunken chump of a BBC producer didn't like me, didn't like my stuff, didn't understand my stuff. And, you know, he was, he was just wrong. So thanks to this, this whim of this guy, a whole generation of television writing talent didn't happen. And I sincerely believe that the landscape of television would be way better now if we'd been allowed to naturally progress the way we had and we would have ended up creating TV series, writing unforgettable television, you know, it would have been an entirely different ball game, but that's the way the cookie crumbles. So I was out of the game for a while, but now it looks like I'm getting back into the game, which is great. And what do you make of what you see? I mean, I suppose you know, Doctor Who, for example, is uh, 
you know, it's back on and uh, everybody loves it. Do you, do you like what you see? I watch almost no British television because I'm watching the American telly. And it's so good. I mean, I think the great Game of Thrones is perhaps the best television series ever made. I mean, it's just so good. And there's all this other stuff that's fantastic. Um, I mean, these are just very obvious things to say, but things like The Wire, Breaking Bad, The Shield, Deadwood, House, The Mentalist, uh, uh, um, Person of Interest. What a great show. And the list goes on. I've got this stack of box sets upstairs. That, when am I going to find the time to watch it? Just discovered Hannibal. What an extraordinary show. It's just... So, so, well, it's interesting because I am a junkie for old British television and I realised the other day that I don't watch anything anymore apart from stuff that's on Game of Thrones and Netflix and all that. So what, when, when, I, when I was watching your stuff on television, when I was watching your Doctor Who on television, America came to us. We were the influence. The BBC influenced us. Well, what happened? What it's true because when I joined the BBC, we, had, we were just doing or had just done Edge of Darkness by Troy Kennedy Martin and The Singing Detective by Dennis Potter. Two of the greatest television shows ever made. And not at the BBC, but on ITV, made by Carnival Films, we'd recently had Traffic, spelt with a K, by Simon Moore, which was mind-blowingly good. It was such a bloody good show. I mean, it was turned into a film with Michael Douglas, right, called Traffic with a C, and it won an Academy Award, which was for the script. And the script was just based on Simon Moore's TV series. I mean, it was a pretty... Good script, but how could you go wrong? So this is me railing on behalf of Simon Moore, who should have shared in that Oscar. Anyway, Traffic was a huge hit as an American movie, but before that it was this amazing British TV series. So all I'm doing is agreeing there was this fantastic flowering of British television. And I, I think that was a high point. I don't think after that there wasn't... The, the, the standard did drop. I mean, I don't think this is just me sour grapes, because... There was this fantastic flood of stuff. But, I mean, what happened there with Dennis Potter died. Simon Moore went to America, went to Hollywood. Uh, Troy Kennedy Martin went to Hollywood. So I suppose the talent either died or went to Hollywood. I think that was probably what happened. And there was a, a quite a long fallow period. Um, I'm trying to remember. That, that obviously, there were some things in that period that, that were terrific. I, they don't immediately spring to mind. But just recently, I say I never watched British television, but... I really liked Wolf Hall. I thought Wolf Hall was great. And I'm really enjoying uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. That's, again, that's terrific. So uh, I've sort of broken my fast in terms of watching stuff on British telly. Uh, I'm not sure Died died and went to Hollywood does echo that lovely line in Survival. I thought if we had died, died or gone to Birmingham. Uh. She's <laughs> such a good writer, right? She's such a fantastic writer. But you, uh, you the sort of, the essence of your question was more to do with what I thought of Doctor Who. Well, I'm delighted that it's come back and it's a huge hit. But I, I have two standard um, descriptions of what it's like for me because I often run into fans. I do loads of conventions. The fans are lovely, but they'll invariably ask me about what I think about this or that story, and I have to confess that I haven't seen it. And they can't work out why I haven't seen it. And I say, okay, it's, it's a bit like these two things. It's a bit like a party that you've not been invited to. But what it's even more like, seeing Doctor Who being such a huge success, is it's like seeing your ex-wife really happy with somebody else, right? And you're very pleased for her, but you really don't want to know too much about it because you have very mixed feelings. So when I say that, and, and to their credit, when I say that, the fans usually understand why. It, it's, so it's a bit painful for me to watch, quite frankly. Yeah. And I did watch it quite religiously when um, 
when it first came back and when Russell was doing because I was hoping to get a gig on it so I was watching it and then I didn't get a gig on it I sort of so I sort of lost heart a little bit so you tried you tried you knocked on knocked yeah on yeah well what I mean and then what happened with that was uh, they didn't want me for Doctor Who but Russell said oh why don't you do a Torchwood well it wasn't quite like that I said to Russell why don't I do a Torchwood he said oh that's a great idea and then what happened with Torchwood was again a nightmare you see television is not an easy career kids anybody out there who's thinking of working in television uh, it's if you can get it if you can play the system properly if you can make it work for you it's great but it's even more difficult now than it used to be because back in the old days writers were genuinely important so if you were Dennis Potter or Troy Kennedy Martin or Simon Moore and you wrote something it was people wouldn't tamper with your script it was really important but now writers are not that well treated uh, it's, it what has happened in British television is they've adopted the worst aspects of the American system, which is that they haven't brought over the fantastic state-of-the-art storytelling you get in American TV shows, but they have brought over the notion that writers can, can be, um, can be sort of, you, you can, what am I trying to say? The writer used to be there and you'd have to deal with the writer. Now the writer, you can just give him orders and you can fire the writer and you could boot him or her out or you can rewrite him or her. And not in uh, the way that happens in America where you have a proper writing team. What happens in Britain is just some producer has some manic idea or they <laughs> somebody in the chain of command can interfere with the script. So the scripts get endlessly interfered with and not in a good way. So we've introduced the system from America that the writer is no longer king, but we haven't replaced it with the fantastic script development system they have over there. So television is, is a very tough gig at the moment. Thanks to Andrew, his charity is Cats Protection, which is cats.org.uk. Uh, the final part of this interview is next time, and between now and then, I hope you have fun. Bye-bye. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Jago and Lightfoot, Series 12 box set. Roll up! Roll up! See the world as you have never seen it before! <clears throat> Evening, Professor. Didn't think I'd see you again tonight. Good evening, Mr. Jacob. Oh, in a formal mood, are we? Take note of the figures. Mentally mark their positions. And why would we want to do that? Because, Inspector, next time you look at the painting... Yes? They will have moved. It was what they found down there that was the problem. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. Something scared them. Good and proper. Father! Come quick! She's got the flickers! Henry, there's something inside the wall. I know, Professor. Let's try to get out. The camera's intermittent motion is provided by the sprocket rollers, you see. Now, calm down, Mr. Paul. It's a Maltese cross mechanism. It's in your breast pocket. There, you see? <laughs> yes, silly me. Be quiet, both of you. Now, into the paint. If you let me finish, I was about to say that I think the professor is trying. Welcome back, Miss Rigson. Welcome back to the past. Big finish. We love stories.